I would really like Bloomberg to take this article that, that I wrote for them in two, 2013 out of their paywall, but basically, you know, my view at the time, which I've held since today, I've been changed, is that everybody should probably have 1% of their assets in Bitcoin. Mm. I still believe that today. And I think it is just a fantastic hedge. So if you go back to the conversation this morning, when you see the amount of leverage the financial industry is running, and you think about all these dislocations and all these exogenous things that are happening that you can't predict, there's a lot of risk to the downside. And it would be great that an, an average individual citizen of any country in the world has an uncorrelated hedge. And I've said this repeatedly ad nauseum on this show, Every financial instrument is correlated. But Buffett, it's all un, fake, but, except Bitcoin, but Jamal, which is fundamentally an uncorrelated, uncorrelated hedge that Warren Buffett says has zero value, zero inherent I, value, I, I, unless I, someone pays more. I for I think it. he's an exceptional person. I've learned an enormous amount, both from afar right. and the few interactions I've had with him. He is completely wrong shouldn't and outdated the price, on this. Shouldn't the price have gone up during this coronavirus situation? Haven, um, it went down like gold. If it was really digital gold. I think that you have to look more at volumes. Uh, these are not necessarily event-driven strategies, meaning you don't, you don't you want to... You called it digital gold. No, he I didn't. didn't say that. No, he didn't. That's what, what people, people say. say. I don't think you buy... I don't think when you, know, you wake up and you see a coronavirus scare and the Dow down 2,000, you should not be going in and buying Bitcoin. That is an idiotic strategy. I think a reasonable strategy is to say, 1% of my net worth... Right. should be in something that is completely uncorrelated to the world and how the world works. You quietly and quick, you know, over some number of time, accumulate a position and then you just never look at it again and hope that that insurance under the mattress never has to come due. Right. But if it does, it will protect you because then that thing will be hundreds of thousands or million dollars a coin. to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is Pierre Richard with Michael Goldstein. Michael, how are you? I'm doing well. I thought we were dead. I thought we were too, but now we're, you know, big number go up. Now we're in the big leagues again. It reminds me of when we went from three digits to four digits. I think that that's how the price should be thought of as, is the number of digits. Oh, which time was this? Like in 2013 or 2016? Both. Both, <laughs> both were great times. Yeah, yeah. Well, more more like in 2016 because we're back where we were before, right? And now we're yeah. starting to see us uh, getting back to uh, some exciting numbers. I think uh, you know. I, I don't want to speculate too much. But <laughs> we're going to the moon. On last week's Steph on the Vera podcast, uh, I jokingly talked about the price cult and. Then I get this Google News notification because I'm very narcissistic. So I have my name put into Google News notifications. 
And it said, uh, Pierre Richard says that Bitcoin influencers are a price cult. And I was being sarcastic, but this particular journalist decided that I was not being sarcastic. Were they writing for decrypt.co? AMB crypto, I think uh, okay. it was, or something. Yeah, yeah, there's too many. I'm just impressed that they find their way into Google News. I guess Google News uh, lets any blog in these days. Yeah, it's a blog aggregating platform. As, as long as it doesn't have Alex Jones, they'll you know, grab the, the feed. Yes. You know, it's funny. There was a Krugman piece. I don't know if he wrote this recently or not, that Adam Smith would not like Bitcoin. It might actually be breaking news, but I tried reading it. And it went to like Krugman.blog.NewYorkTimes.com. So already they had blog in it. I thought it was funny because he's capitulated. But then it didn't load. There, I got an error. So In his mind, he was thinking of like, who's the most hardcore free market economist that will really get those Bitcoiners or something. Or he's appealing to the crowd of like Wall Street types mm. who uh, perhaps don't have the sort of heterodox economics uh, opinions since they're in Wall Street or whatever. So they would, they also associate, as a way to keep them out of Bitcoin is, oh, well, you know, Adam Smith. Right. That's, yeah. a, that's a tear down from even Friedman said. Well, yeah, because basically you're saying to your audience that you guys are, you stopped around the end of the 18th century in your <laughs> economics, right? They, you never made it to the marginal revolution. Your economics are classical. And that the only economic concept that you're familiar with is the invisible hand. Uh, and, and you're also not allowed to think further beyond that. No, yeah. Uh, although I think that another important uh, thing that uh, Adam Smith talked about was uh, division of labor. So that's good too. But in any case... Yeah, did not get to any of the Austrians. Friedman did not get to neoclassical, right? Yeah. yeah. And now, if he really wanted to troll, he would be like, even Hayek would not like Bitcoin because Hayek wanted a stable coin. I've seen that one from yeah, yeah. some Galaxy Brains as well. Well, especially the ones pitching stable coins. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how well that worked out for them. <laughs> yeah, stable coins... You know, there's a, there's a thing going around that I keep hearing is that, like, if you do crypto to crypto trading, in some places it's not taxable. And then they say, oh, stable coins are cryptos. And so if you sell your Bitcoin for, like, USD tethers, then you don't have to pay taxes. And I'm like, have you talked with an attorney? <laughs> have you run this by the tax authorities? Because... I'm concerned that, you know, people might be taking that advice a little too seriously and making bad decisions. But yeah, the tax code is there to incentivize hodling. I think people should take it seriously. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wish it was because the government was looking after us. Um, really, they're just being, they're being onerous yeah. uh, and tyrannical. I mean, I was just uh, on the way here, I was listening to the new Jack Mahler's podcast uh, with Marty. And he's talking about all of the stuff he's having to deal with regulators, with Ellen Strike to get, you know, this kind of brand new use case out of lightning out into the wild. And it really is incredible. I mean, as much as, you know, uh, there's, you know, talk of Bitcoin as savings and everything, Bitcoin really has been held back as a payments technology, not anything to do with the Bitcoin core repository and everything to do with the IRS, making it such that a $5 purchase 
is just as much a taxable event as, you know, a, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollar gain with capital gains. And uh, <laughs> that's no bueno. That's not cool. And uh, truly holding us back. Yeah, I remember seeing this map that showed like that in places where there is no such tax on, uh, you know, using Bitcoin, basically, that the uh, merchant adoption has taken off way more quickly than in places where there is, which makes sense. Um, even if, you know, we're always talking about, oh, why would you use Bitcoin to spend stuff with? It's like, OK, but if there is a active disincentive, if there's a tax on it, yeah, mathematically, you're just going to have less of it. I like it. So there's there's workarounds, right? Uh, there's the uh, like unchained capital approach of just borrowing yeah. against your Bitcoin and not paying taxes on it that way. But hopefully the IRS gets abolished and uh, then we don't have to deal with that. Got to hodl until the IRS <laughs> goes away. How many years do we give that? I actually I do wonder, I mean, what would be the time frame, do you think, of like the actual disintegration of the, the Internal Revenue Service? Yeah, I guess it, you got to look at the S2F uh, modeling and see uh, what point is the dollar gone? Because that I think, you know, with the dollar gone, then the IRS is pretty... I, well, you could make the opposite argument, right? That the federal government would be more reliant on the IRS at that point because they can't just get senior rent revenue. Yeah. The problem would be the cost of enforcement, uh, you know, that ends up being an issue if you well, don't have, like, centralized All of their infrastructure has to be able to catch up to be able yeah. to deal with, you know, understanding what it means to hold Bitcoin and sell Bitcoin and how Bitcoin even works. Um, it would be interesting to know how, how much they actually grasp that. Based on some of their guidances. Yeah. Um, Although the U.S. Marshals have apparently succeeded at receiving and sending Bitcoins. So, <laughs> you know, this is still, you know, one of my favorite things to point out with people is, uh, you know, when the, the U.S. government, because you have all these people, we've been hearing it as long as we've been in Bitcoin. Basically, any time that libertarians have any chance of creating something nice, you always have the people come out and say, oh, well, the government will just squash it. So you should live, uh, you know, yeah. a squalor life, no, 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 black and yellow wristbands. Well, th okay, that's the agorist libertarian <laughs> or the political libertarian would be like, no, we can't get anything done until our guys get elected. And so you have to attend our national convention and listen to crazy people <laughs> talk to, at you about libertarianism. Or, yeah, or, or, or and you have to vote it. for... Uh, Bill Weld and uh, <laughs> Johnson. Yeah. Uh, and that's how we'll succeed. Well, and then, you know, you also need to come write white papers for the... Uh, you yeah, know, you need to work for a Cato. Cato will take us to victory. But uh, yeah, well, you know, when the U.S. government did that, they sold off, what was it, 160,000 Bitcoins? Yeah. Which, uh, you know, they never sell the cocaine they seize. No, yeah, yeah. So they quote unquote burn it, which I think it goes straight up their noses. <laughs> but yeah, that's the cynical side of me. They were like, Except, "Hey, can you know, we burning a hole in this? Can we snort there. these bitcoins? Yeah. No. All right, can we just sell them then? Like, what are we <laughs> going to do? With this? Like, yeah, this can we is sell useless. them for these have zero utility. Can we sell them for cocaine? No, we took down the Silk Road. Oh, yeah. What are we going to do? So they needed dollars, so they could yeah. do it the old fashioned way to get their cocaine. But yeah, no, that was a fantastic legitimizing event. 
All these sorts of things uh, are just legitimizing and makes it that much harder to roll anything back. Yeah, I think that sometimes people underestimate that like state agents are rational actors. And so like if they have an asset where like from a public policy perspective, uh, you know, people owning Bitcoin, it's not like a drug or, you know, something like that. They're not thinking through like, what are our friends at the Federal Reserve going to think about this? Like, because I think that if it had been the Federal Reserve that had seized the Bitcoins, maybe Ben Bernanke would have been like, hey, look, like we need to destroy this because, you know, we can't legitimize this monetary instrument, blah, blah, blah. But every different branch of government is acting selfishly. And the U.S. Marshals were like, hey, let's get some money. Let's get revenue from selling this. Yeah. I think the only... Um person in government who actually understands the uh, the need to find out what the Federal Reserve thinking is our friend Brad Sherman out in California. <laughs> and he's just going to be yelling that into the void as hyper-Bitcoinization uh, is thrust upon him. Yeah, he'll, we have the doom Ron Paul. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have the doom Brad Sherman. He's like, I told you this is what would happen. You only had to listen. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there are Keynesian preppers who are like, hey, look, Bitcoin's going to succeed. We're going we, back on the gold standard yeah, over here. We need to stock up on food. Like, we know how bad it's going to get <laughs> with this hyperdeflation. You won't even be able to buy food in the future because just deflationary spirals all around. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It'll be getting less and less expensive, and so you won't buy food. Yeah, you know, there's those articles about, uh, you know, Silicon Valley guys and other very wealthy people have their bunkers. Mm-hmm. And they have, you know, these, all these crazy prepper stuff, which, you know, we're supposed to think it's, you know, crazy conspiracy theorist stuff to do that. But then, you know, why, why are the rich people doing that? Like, what do they know that we don't or something like that? But also, we don't need to worry about coronavirus because it's no worse than the flu. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I, I want to see, like, the article of, uh, yeah, like, all the central bankers, like, looking into their bunkers. Or uh, them doing the equivalent of the Free State Project of, like, <laughs> hey, we need to get together and create our own country where we can have an inflationary currency <laughs> So that we can escape the Bitcoin maximalists. We want freedom of monetary competition. Yeah. <laughs> Every time we try it, it hyperinflates. <laughs> Nobody wants our money. That's an interesting, like, sea land also. Yeah. They're going to start homesteading so that they can continue experimenting with They're going to become the real libertarians. Yeah. We're going to well, be living in, like, these, you know, city-state citadels. You know, under the rule of various, like, you know, Bitcoin whale em- god emperors and, uh, you know, doing everything we can to scrounge up, you know, yet another Satoshi please yeah. as we, uh, you know, do micropayment payable tasks for these guys. And meanwhile, the, the Keynesians are going to have known this was coming and they're going to be shaking This their is heads. the cycle of history. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, you know, the pendulum has to swing. <laughs> both directions and uh, it's going to overcorrect at some point. We'll see. But yeah, I, I do like the idea of, of Keynesians being on the defensive because I feel like, you know, Austrians have been on the defensive for a century plus now, uh, like since World War One, arguably. But yeah, it ends now. <laughs> <laughs> we the real economists now. Yeah, yeah. 
Maybe I'm cocky because we're both tinkering, but um, yeah, in any case. What else has been in the news? So yeah, the, the Tron stuff, the Ethereum stuff, people losing their minds over there. Well, you know, can you actually, I, I, I see, you know, Udi posting yeah. in my timeline. Yeah, I was going to say this. But I, just, actually, I don't even keep up with this. I, uh, yeah. I have um, my own propaganda efforts to attend uh, to. Yeah, absolutely. So this is where I think the division of labor is really crucial. Um, and Udi has, has struck a nerve that then... Our friend Rodolfo Novak really punched in uh, with Adam Beck. They took a selfie with uh, Justin's son. I did see this. This yeah. was at the uh, Satoshi Roundtable. Yeah, exactly. And the Ethereum people lost their minds because this is just... It's also... It's the culmination of like charges of hypocrisy against Bitcoin maximalists. Some of which I am sympathetic towards. Like, for example, uh, you know, there's... Uh, issuing assets on liquid where the asset kind of just looks like an ICO, like what we saw in 2017 with Ethereum and that, but I think the problem is that people conflate the engineering critique of the system you're using to issue the asset with the economic critique of what rights that asset is actually giving you and how is that being communicated to people um, right, because liquid to me seems like something that is more, there can potentially be legitimate use cases. Oh, absolutely. We have to see how yeah. the market would actually, if it would, if it would actually adopt. I don't, I don't know that the market will adopt it, but, you know, uh, it doesn't create a brand new blockchain just to create an asset. And when someone does it, like, it is ultimately, it's simply a, a sort of bearer asset that you have to rely on a central entity that issued it for that thing to mean anything. Right. Um, there can still be like a, you know, a wider market outside of them that decides how much to price that. But what it actually means to say, like if you did it as equity and you have the token as equity, it's dependent on the centralized institution that issued them to create the value and uh, do that just like a traditional company. So it's... And it's an investment, right? Yeah. And, and our whole thing is like, can you use Bitcoin for savings? And then if you want to go invest, there's a myriad of ways of investing. And, and I've always been like a pro the concept of tokens. Yeah. I, I understand yeah. the value of having large, unforgeable numbers. JSON web tokens? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and like the use cases that you can have for them. Yeah. It's just, I don't want to create another blockchain for it because the economics of that is you are necessarily trying to compete with Bitcoin as a currency, even if you don't think of yourself as that. Right, right. And you're going to lose. <laughs> yeah, and then the other part that I found amusing was with UD saying that Tron is better than Ethereum, some of the interpretation out there was that UD was recommending that people actually buy Tron, which I think kind of like shows the shill mentality which I'm, of course, a proud <laughs> member of, where anything that you speak positively about, you're saying that you should buy that asset. And I think that's a reasonable like interpretation. And I think that's where like the meme starts getting into trouble is when people are like, oh, Tron's better than Ethereum? All right, even Bitcoin maximalists like Tron? And so there are like naive people. This goes back to like a perennial issue, though, in the, in the ecosystem of like, Protecting the noobs versus kind of doggy dog 
you know, buyer beware, uh, yeah. DYOR attitude. Also, just regards to propaganda itself, because like from a just kind of meme uh, perspective, like that's a brilliant troll uh, yeah. that Udi is doing. It's been obviously very highly effective. That's the metric by which we can look at how good of a troll it is. It's like how effective, how much butthurt is generated by this set of statements. Jimmy's and were rustled. <laughs> lots of Jimmy's were rustled. Yeah, and it's also it's targeted. There's very few noobs on Twitter. I don't think people understand this that like the people on Twitter are those who have gone down the rabbit hole, so to speak. And I think that there's very few people where they read Udi's tweets and they take it at face value and they're not like in on it because Twitter's like a it's an echo chamber. And people say this all the time of like, oh, you guys are really loud on Twitter, but you know, out in the real world, yada, yada. And they're not necessarily wrong. Now, once again, I mean, that's always just a, when people say, oh, this is just a loud minority. Yeah. That's yet another way to just, that, for what it's worth, I, sometimes it is very much true. I don't deny that it's not true sometimes. But it's also the deployment of that is usually just a way to marginalize it. Sometimes yeah. ignoring the empirical reality that maybe that isn't ser- simply a loud minority, but a group that's just being vocal about what a lot of people think. Yeah, because it's like, all right, well, okay, let's go outside of Twitter. Let's see what's going on in the order books. You know, Bitcoin has way more liquidity than everything else. Okay, so I guess that settles that. Like, I'm not saying that, like, one causes the other, but you can't just be like, oh, Bitcoin maxis are actually a small part of the industry, and it's actually mostly shitcoiners. There's too much data against that. Especially, you know, through this bear cycle. I mean, some of the liquidity amounts in some of these exchanges is beyond laughable. Yeah, phenomenally infinitesimal. Or they'll have like what looks like large amounts of money, but the actual liquidity death is like 20 cents. If you were. So it's just like these giant wash trades. uh, Lots of wash trading. Lots of fake data out there. You have highly illiquid goods. You can play all sorts of games. Yeah. And I mean, if you own the exchange and also own the or control like the underlying token, then, you know, it's it's open season and exchanges. If you go to BitcoinTradeVolume.com, you can see the more legit exchanges. I don't know that it's 100 percent accurate, but it's certainly, you know, Kraken's on there. So it's got to have some accuracy to it. And you'll see, you know, that what the real volume is. And they found that that was like. Uh, a tenth of mm-hmm. what coin market cap says. So then, you know, it was funny because people were saying, oh, look, Bitcoin's manipulated. All this volume's fake. It's like, no, hold on. This fake volume is to attract altcoiners to list on their exchange and then they charge a listing fee. And that's what the fake volume's for, not for moving the Bitcoin yeah. price. Meanwhile, with Bitcoin, you can't even charge a listing fee. Oh, yeah. Good luck <laughs> with that. Yeah. Send an invoice to Mr. Nakamoto. He'll get right back to you. Yeah, people, it's the opposite. You know, they, they, they Maybe he is. He has been stocking up on invoices and he just hasn't moved his coins yet. Perhaps, perhaps. They've yeah. all been going to that GMX account. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or, yeah, he's using it as collateral. He's blocking fiat against it. <laughs> you brought up, like, you know, like their critiques of Maxis. I don't like the, the whole Maxi thing. I, I'm just, fine with it. I'm totally fine with it. I've just been so used to like maximalists. Maxi pads. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Anyway, I'm not even going to go into jokes there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm curious though, like what are other, are there critiques of maxis that you actually think have some merit to them? Yeah, I mean, the number one that I'm guilty of and that many of us are guilty of is uh, not adhering to the cypherpunks write code mantra as much as we could, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense that, like, we spend too much time on Twitter arguing with people, blah, 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 and not enough time actually writing code. And that's more of a critique of myself than, you know, of any other person specifically. Yeah, <laughs> but, I, I feel the same way. So, you know, we get sucked into this stuff. And the other thing is, like, this feeling that there's two extremes that one can go in of, oh, I need to do stuff for Bitcoin for it to succeed. Mm -hmm. And thus, Bitcoin is succeeding due to my own personal efforts, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is a form of narcissism. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum is, I don't need to do anything for Bitcoin to succeed. You know, this thing is anti-fragile without anyone's involvement. Right. Um, and so then that's kind of just a form of like fatalism and laziness. And then, you know, in between is the truth, right? Of like, yeah, yeah okay, we're individually, we're not going to make Bitcoin succeed, but we've all got to pitch in to make it happen. I think there's, uh, you know, an interesting counter argument, I think, to both of those, in a way, I, all these things, yeah. there's a division of labor, everyone has different preferences, there is no... Like, oh, yeah, correct, so. you know, amount of time you should be spending on this stuff. Yeah. Um, but like, for instance, simply hodling could be derided by both the person who's upset. Oh, well, you got a code um, as well as uh, the person who, uh, oh, you don't need to do anything. But right. like hodling is in some sense an active process. It's passive in the sense that it's sitting there. But like, well, to sit and it's like when you start seeing like a $10,000 Bitcoin, it's like, am I going to continue hodling today? And you have to go through all the reasons why, yes, I should continue hodling or no, I think I'm ready for that Lambo. Or There's a process to acquiring and securing the Bitcoin. And so once they are secured, I do think that there is, yeah, a huge amount of psychological pressure, especially because we've all been raised of like, you got to put your money to work. Yeah. You got to yeah. go, go lend it out, go do something with it or go trade, go margin trade. Yeah, and this has been, you know, classic. I, I would say that's probably even, you know, extending from uh, before the whole Keynesian nonsense. Uh, this is sort of like traditional financial advice as well. Yeah. You know, if you read old books, you know, like the popular like Richest Man in Babylon, they'll talk about, you know, put your money to work for you. And that, I think that was written, what, the 30s or so? But that thing, it also assumes like, and this is, we already had a dominant, pretty sound money. Yeah. And so, you know, the market had already found its sort of equilibrium. There was no hyper-goldization. Right. Happening. And it's yeah. a little different when you're in this yeah. monetization process and you're actually like, you know, with the gold, it's not going to like skyrocket 10x in two years. Whereas in Bitcoin, it's like, I don't know, guys, really could skyrocket 10x in the next two years. Yeah. In fact, it'd almost be at this point, I think, surprising if it didn't. And then there's just the basic, like, human desire to consume, you know? Yeah. So like, all right, I'm sitting on this amount of Bitcoin. I could get a yacht, you know? I could uh, go DJ in Las Vegas. Like, uh, there's 
an endless amount of things that you know people spend money on, and lottery winners are proof of that, right? Like yeah. they spend themselves poor very often. Professional athletes as well. So to say that like hodling is not an active process and that it is passive to me is just a denial of human nature. And right. you're basically saying that like this person was born with a such a low propensity to consume that it takes zero effort for them to just sit <laughs> on cash, which I've never met that person. I know that there's like monks all and whatnot. Of, all of Austrian economics would fall apart if that existed. The monk still has to eat at some point. Even if you're a breathitarian somehow. Yeah. You know, there's, yeah. Like, there's claims of breathitarians. Even if you do that, you do have to take that breath at some point. Yeah. No, like it, it yeah, is. You don't have to spend money on it. And the same thing, like, you right. Could, you right. Could have a lifestyle. Is, like, there, where, there, there can't exist a person with actually zero time preference. Right. Like, that is impossible. So. Uh, but the other side of this is that, you know, when you're hodling, even if that is a more uh, passive process, like you've gotten into the Zen mode of hodling, still like to imply that that is not contributing to Bitcoin, I think is a, a massive oversight of some of the main drivers of Bitcoin adoption. So like all things being said, there's a lot of infrastructure that I wish existed today that don't yet exist. And yet Bitcoin is $10,000. And we can imagine it going to 100,000. So why is it that we can imagine that would happen despite that infrastructure not existing if, like, oh, you must write the code for these things to happen? There's a sort of narcissism there as well. I guess you pointed well, out. it goes how, into the utility yeah. thing of, like, people feel like, oh, Bitcoin at $10,000 is not sustainable because you don't have the utility to back it and so we're still in a like speculative bubble phase that could evaporate tomorrow. When and uh, I saw this. Uh, oh yeah, this was related to Yudi's uh, trolling. This Ethereum guy was like, "Wait until serious investors find out how unserious Bitcoiners are. <laughs> They're gonna dump their Bitcoin." Like, no, no, geez. That's not how it works at all. Not how it what works at all. What happens is these guys don't have Bitcoins, and all the hodlers do have Bitcoins, no. and they ain't selling, Yeah. and it's going to cost Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and whoever else a very, very large amount of dollars uh, to try to bribe the Bitcoins out of Bitcoiner hands. Also, like, people like... Uh the serious investors, they're used to like looking at currencies and not expecting their currency to also be a Wikipedia database. Like they don't have these lofty expectations that a lot of you know JavaScript technologist developers have when they <laughs> approach their currency, where they're like, oh yeah, I need my currency to also be able to predict the election. And cure cancer. And cure cancer. <laughs> And I need my Tamagotchi to also be a part of my currency. So I think that there's a, a cultural disconnect there and just a lack of self-awareness. But anyway. <laughs> but, you know, like, I, I really like uh, Safedine's comments about the underlying technology of Bitcoin being number go up. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously there's going to be differing opinions here about, you know, what exactly is making number go up. But one can't deny that hodling is indeed a part of that. And so oh, yeah. by hodling, you are at some margin adding to the number go up, which then in turn helps uh, incentivize the rest of Bitcoin development. So it's not like you aren't 
helping Bitcoin by simply hodling. You're actually helping it a lot. It's just, you know, perhaps there's ways in which uh, you might be able to contribute more. But even then, you know, I, I think people, they get so sucked into the mentality of I need to help Bitcoin that unless they can find a way to quit their job and devote everything to Bitcoin, uh, they feel like a failure when really the actual like amount of, you know, kind of uh, business verticals that exist for money, it's only so much and not everyone's going to have one of those jobs and it's okay to do other things. There's a lot of other things that need to be done at the Citadel. So people should be, you know, thinking about how can I work on Citadel technology? What kind of things can I work on? that will help. And then you're pulling in income for Bitcoin so you can hodl and you get to contribute in that marginal way without getting sucked in to this potentially narcissistic point of view where, you know, there's a problem with, uh, you know, Bitcoin because my particular desires of how I want to contribute are not being met with the praise on the market that I want them to have. Yeah. And then like the expectation that a price increase should be attributed to your efforts and then like nobody cares and you become, you know, salty over the fact that, Hey, look, like it's, that's not what's driving the value of this asset. It's not your efforts. It's everyone's efforts. And it's kind of, it reminds me of, yeah, running a full node, right? Where everyone is sovereign, but because of that, no one is sovereign. And so you get into these paradoxes and dichotomies, uh, but in any case, yeah, let's see. What else is going on? I just, I, I look at my stock to flow multiple bot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got, uh, it's above, right? I think at this point, it's yep. kind of above it, well, the uh, well above line. Now. I say well above uh, compared yeah. to where it had been when the bot started. Right. Um, so I had put out a tweet thread prior to making the bot when I was just first playing with the, the graph that became the bot that I really liked uh, looking at. And Basically, what what was so interesting to me, reflecting on our history about thinking about Bitcoin, is we had always spoken of Bitcoin as this exponential event, this thing's growing exponentially, but we never really had a guiding exponential curve to really think about. We would look at stuff like, uh, if you look at some of the old articles, you know, talk about Metcalfe's Law, Mm -hmm. and we'll have stuff like number of users yeah. or a number of wallets or something like that. But all of these are extremely spurious concepts. You have no true way to know these numbers. Stock to flow comes in, you know, thanks to, you know, the Bitcoin standard by Safedine and the work by Plan B and, you know, all the other sort of, you know, quant guys playing around with that, where it's this, you know, very interesting model that, you know, we have to contend with. In that, one of the most interesting parts of it is the fact that all you need in order to work with the stock to flow model is your full node. And so it's actually this completely objective metric that you can look at the network. And I I don't know of any other good metric like that. So if you were actually able to accurately count the number of users, Mm -hmm. because here's the problem too, is that like, all right, so you you take the number of users. Okay, well, we want to weight that by how many Bitcoin they own. Okay, well, now you're just talking about the stock. Like, you're coming back to stock to flow, Mm -hmm. like, very quickly. Yeah. The moment you start logically working through the data of, or or even like, all right, wallets. Okay, yeah. Well, how much, how many Bitcoin are in each wallet? All right. Then if we weight it by that, then, (laughs) okay, well, now we just have, we're back to stock to flow. So, 
no matter how you and like the number of transactions too is uh, another thing that that came up and that one just doesn't make any sense at all because not only are there uh, let's call them custodial off-chain solutions where you can't see the transactions. Yeah, all, all the stuff on exchanges, for instance. Yeah, uh, it's just over time, it's going to get noisier and noisier. And yeah. like with the but the block size limit, right? Yeah. Like you can imagine, there's two things there. One is if you have like a really big block size or something, you can have you know let's have gigabyte transactions. But does that actually represent? utility or did someone just spray a gigabyte of data that's sort of a well, i mean that itself is going to have some subjective elements as well as like what what is the actual total fee revenue and then they they but have heuristics that, for paying like that in the first place if it's the if it's a miner trying to pump their own coin yeah. then that doesn't really tell us it's not really this like objective metric we can latch on to but then also you have a thing like you know as with a block size limit, as transactions increase, we can expect many more people to be doing stuff like batching, yeah. coin joining. Um, that's actually, it's very fascinating to me that coin joins, you know, we think of it as this privacy tool, but in reality, like in the future, it might just be something that everyone uses because it makes transactions cheaper and the privacy is this benefit, right. a side effect. So people are going to be, you know, batching transactions. So it's like, if you have one chain that has, you know, a thousand transactions because it has a large block size and one that has one transaction, but it has a thousand inputs and a thousand outputs from a bunch of different people. That metric kind of breaks down because it doesn't look at the actual market value of what's being pumped through those transactions. Right. So with this, uh, like stock to flow, we have this objective thing. It creates this curve that's surprisingly worked extremely well to the point that it, it explains most of Bitcoin's price history. And, uh, you know, I, I think from an Austrian, you, you talked about this on Stefan Lavera, I think from an, like, an Austrian perspective, it just shows that there's a lot we haven't explored about the praxeology of making economic choice around extremely scarce goods. Mm-hmm. Um, and this probably, there's something we just haven't touched because we haven't, uh, Mises already had gold where it was. They didn't have to look at monetization as much. Yeah, and also competition because you could people do say like, "Hey, Litecoin is as scarce as Bitcoin. It has the same supply function, and yet it doesn't have that S2F price correlation." And if you look at its chart, it looks like it's got more of a correlation with Bitcoin than its own S2F. <laughs> so clearly, like in the market for monies, there needs to be more explanation. And I personally like. You know, people are like trying to come up with valuation frameworks for altcoins and yada yada. Oh, let's go on GitHub. Let's see how much developer activity there is. But there's just no, uh, from like a monetary economics point of view, there's not enough literature written. And like, yeah. uh, you know, safety and right, the Bitcoin standard, it's excellent. It was groundbreaking. And now there needs to be like, I'd love to see uh, the shitcoin standard explaining you know, what drives the price of shit coins? And uh, our friend Jimmy Song touched on this of the marketing, mm-hmm. right? That it's a function of marketing, which is totally plausible and ties back into the Ethereum Tron controversy. 
Right, where uh, Justin is, you know, hats off to the guy. He knows how to make a personal brand. He had a buffet with Buffett. It's amazing. (laughs) And then people get mad at him because they're like, like, he's too good at marketing. And I don't know how Tron is done trading-wise. I don't remember. I think I've ever looked at a Tron chart. Maybe I have. But but going back uh, while you're typing into CoinMarketGap... Basically, like now we have an, a, a completely objective measure that everyone can latch on to. It obviously has some explanatory power. What is underneath that from a, like a, a pure economic theory uh, point of view is, you know, that's going to take time for us to develop. That's like actually it's exciting that there's something new that Austrians can explore there. Now it's here. So we have the curve for this whole Bitcoin thing. We have a reasonable curve that we can use as the metric for all of, you know, Bitcoin price, uh, like kind of like the, the measure of how well Bitcoin is doing relative to our expectations before it's just like, well, it's going to go up exponentially again sometime. I don't know. Right. And now it's like, okay, well now we kind of, we can say like, if uh, Bitcoin does not hit a hundred thousand by the end of December, 2021, or the 55,000 is the more, you know, conservative version of the model. If it doesn't do that, then it would be reason for us to go back and reevaluate our valuation model for Bitcoin. But the valuation model that we've been implicitly doing this entire time since we've gotten into Bitcoin has been pointing at this sort of exponential growth. And now we have it. And my bot is basically like, okay, here's the line. How well are we doing against that line? And as I pointed out, as, as long as it doesn't go below negative 0.5 or so, it's extremely boring. If it is below that, then it's like getting into an actual bear market. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, like just kind of going along. And right now at 10,000, if I remember correctly, that might be about 0.14 or so on the, the stock flow multiple. It's right where it should be, you know? Maybe it'll go down a little bit again, but it looks like the market is kind of keeping that from happening. There's yeah. the, that big green, what, what, what is the, I just retweeted it. Hammer short, oh, the, oh, the yeah, parabolic yeah. traps, yeah, uh, yeah. Thing. The, the, yeah, the hammer candle, yeah, 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 just uh, you know, just smashing these shorts, but um, yeah, it, it's just it's on track, and so my bot, as I look at it, is that just like kind of tracking thing, I, you know, like how well are we on pace with this uh, valuation model that we've been kind of hinting at for all these years, and finally starting to get a better grasp of. Um, thanks to the fine works of those mentioned and many more. Yeah. And as I look at the um, kind of the where obviously it's going to start taking off with the having in uh, this year. And then we enter this corridor of bullishness where it's funny because if you look at the previous cycle, the price like underperformed, even though it was going up tremendously it was still going up more slowly than the S2F model would have predicted. And then before, you know, hitting the the parabolic top and overshooting. I think that shows that, uh, you know, people are so irrational. They're not bullish enough early on in the cycle. And then they get way too bullish right at the end. Well, and then, of course, like the the model itself is not saying that, you know, that'll be the price uh, throughout. What it's saying is like, this is the sort of threshold that it'll average around. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's what it does. So, I mean, the, the question is, uh, you know, what can we expect by 
May when there's the halving. Plan B thinks that it'll be above 10,000. I could imagine it being, you know, 13,000 or so. But, you know, even my bot, it's based off, you know, uh, Stephen Wolfram. Uh, no, sorry, uh, Rob Wolfram. <laughs> Different Wolfram. <laughs> Rob Wolfram, uh, Hamal03 on, on Twitter. It's based on his modeling of it. And he uses a 360-day stock to flow, which is based on plan B's monthly times 12. So it's just 30 times 12 to get roughly a year for that. That's using that. But, you know, we don't know. So far, we've seen historically that that's a kind of nice looking line relative to the actual price. But we don't know what holds for the future because we don't know if this starts popping off, how are institutional investors going to be responding to this? And what kind of when more liquidity is coming in from them, how is that going to change how they're able to kind of tighten things up to really, you know, follow through? It could be that, you know, in the future, the one day or the 10 day or the 30 day stock to flow is is a much nicer looking for this round in terms of this slope upward. So it's kind of, it's just like a subjective preference thing to use that that particular chart. I wonder if, we talked about previously governments, you know, wanting to shut down Bitcoin and whatnot. If with this next bull cycle, we'll see more action from governments and what that ends up looking like. Or, and I think this is going to be the case, that because Bitcoin is so disconnected from the rest of the financial system, that they just end up not caring, really. <laughs> like, they, it's just not even on their radar. And it's just this... Until it's too late. Yeah, and or it's this crazy thing that's like growing on the side. Yeah. You know, and it's not like kind of like gold, right? Gold's like been sidelined at this point and it doesn't, you know. Isn't, you know, Taleb's critique of a lot of Wall Street and stuff basically like almost comes down to the fact that they don't understand exponentials and nth order effects. And so if that's the case, and apologies to Leb if I'm misinterpreting. Yeah, please don't call me an imbecile on, uh, yeah. uh, on Twitter. But Ed Bitstein is an <laughs> IYI. He's not Mediterranean. <laughs> but if like that's the case, I mean, I, I could imagine that, yeah. Like, once again, they were blindsided by Bitcoin going up to 20K and down. Yeah. And, and once again, down because they couldn't see the exponential curve tulips uh that it was actually fitting along the entire time yeah i can imagine that just happening again and again and again where they just keep not expecting it like a child playing peekaboo and they're surprised every time that yeah. like, the, per- the face shows up and every time they're like <laughs> okay this is the last one <laughs> it's different now because you've run out of greater falls Ha, 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 big well, you know, and the fact that, you know, even the stock to flow, if the stock to flow model holds up, you know, as uh, Trav says, demand follows price. There's something about the valuation and the way that money comes in. You've tweeted about how money is a bubbling good. I think there's, these are very important concepts for people to consider because they're only thinking about that demand side where it's like, yeah. oh, well, you know, as you have more demand. And so, Someone like that on Wall Street, they think that in order for Bitcoin to go to, say, a million dollars, that you actually have to bring in way more demand than I think is actually necessary. Because it's really like, just someone has to want a Bitcoin really badly. And no one else is willing to sell it to them. Yeah. At at that low price. Low, low price. 
The infamous Marcia Papescu had an article about this many years ago. Do you remember that? About he was talking. I'd have to go dig it up, yeah. but he he had something. You know, he was calling this years ago about you know supply would just dry up because no one wants to get rid of it. It does not take a lot of extra demand to just like, please, can I have a Bitcoin? Can I have a Bitcoin? And they keep having to raise their price and no one's giving it to them. And I will often criticize illiquid altcoins for, you know, saying the last trade is what sets the price. And so if you just trade, you know, $1 worth of shitcoin X, yeah. then you can set the price of whatever you want. The same is true in Bitcoin. Like, I guess that's my hot take. Bitcoin is the same as a shitcoin. Uh, no, but it's <laughs> well, just, it's just like the difference with liquidity. That yeah. is what liquidity is. Yeah. It's like, how well could you get away with like dropping the price really low by now, making the, the it problem stop? is that the shitcoins have the, the opposite problem, right? They have too much supply. Everyone's trying to unload their bags, and the support is just not there. And that's what we. I just looked at the Tron chart. That's what I see when I look at the Tron chart. It's like. I see people getting dumped on for, you know, an extended period of time after the pump. Yeah. And And it's just bleeding out. With Bitcoin, you have that same effect, but it's propped up by, like, seemingly something to do with stock to flow. Yeah. You know, whatever that might be. And so there's, like, these, you know, the hodlers in the last resort are out there holding up that line, and you can only pump so far. But if nothing else has that line of support, then... You know, over time, they all they all tend towards zero. So one of the questions I see people ask is, is there going to be another alt season? You know, and I should preface this by saying, even if one thinks that there is going to be another alt season, that doesn't mean you should go buy alts because it's probably not going to be the alts that you buy that are going to pump into alt season. Right. There's thousands of them. Yeah. Um, and so they're going to be rotating out. There's going to be new ones. There's going to be big launches, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you're going to have to get on 4chan biz to keep up on the latest meme coin. Yeah. So, you know, I need to get my chain link. Got to get your chain link. <laughs> Pile up, chain link. And Tron seems promising. You know, he's... he's no, Tron's played out now. I look at this and it's a disaster. What does that say for Ethereum then? That yeah, well, <laughs> we'll we'll have UD on next show. <laughs> He's bullish now because the consensus, uh, Joe Lubin, is firing people and thus selling less Ethereum. Mm. So that's a very positive catalyst for Ethereum stock to flow. So, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, so uh, the Ethereum is right. Bitcoin, I mean, uh, Ethereum will be the, the correct sound money. Yes. <laughs> its monetary policy is dictated by how many developers are hired by consensus. I do love when they have to rely on our memes yeah. uh, that don't even apply to their coin. But yeah. uh, hey, you guys do your thing. <laughs> your cringe thing. And even when they don't rely on our memes, they're relying on like app coin memes and you know utility arguments that were around before Ethereum and are just getting recycled and diluted by a very... <laughs> wide array of um well you know there's the professor coins have you heard this professor coins yeah it's uh um, you mean like i mean cyrus yeah Ava. so like coins created by phds okay and like algorand i think is one of them yeah Definitive. well i love all the yeah. stable coins come out and it's like oh this guy studied at mit it's like yeah Oh, you know, because the guys who studied MIT at the Federal Reserve have done a great job, so clearly they'll be able to do an even better job when they're, you know, able to just write their own 
Federal Reserve stat. I find it amusing that stablecoin proponents can't keep like their thoughts straight in the sense that the reason stablecoins have been successful is because they increase Bitcoin's liquidity. I haven't really seen any uh, actual usage of, uh, of tethers at my local Starbucks, but obvious reason for that is that we already have a stablecoin. And so it's just like regulatory arbitrage. But then they leap to the reason Bitcoin doesn't get used is because it's too volatile. And that's why we need to develop this stablecoin. And, you know, okay, so you're not going to do better than the Federal Reserve in terms of stability. And then it's like, oh, well, abroad, you know, there is central banks where uh, they are too stupid to yeah. maintain a good all, person. All of them, if they want to help stable coins, they should be helping, you know, go work for Cash App, go work for Venmo. Yeah. Go work for these companies and, you know, exactly. help, really <laughs> help really make, uh, you know, the dollar even more useful as a stable coin. Because it's out there. It's already, uh, it's already won. You don't need to, and like... Or you can recognize that maybe that sort of way of managing the money is not the way you should do it. And you try something completely new and you focus in on on the winner there, which is Bitcoin. Yeah. Personally, I would find it exhausting to work on a stablecoin project when I know that it's like not the future. It's just this stopgap measure. And like companies have this as well, where they're like, hey, we've got to work on this thing. Because we've got a new system coming, but we can't work on the new system yet. We've got to like maintain this old thing. And it's just, I don't know, I find that to be a depressing way of like going through life. Yeah, it's also just like not an interesting or new idea. I know Nick Carter was tweeting about this recently, about how there's actually this long history of people basically trying to create their stable coins. Because yeah. frankly, I mean, like Hayek's vision of money with the denationalization of money did include sort of these like using baskets of like, it was more along the lines of like, okay, you are a private issuer of currency. It was assuming that as the thing, how would you be going about issuing this? Well, you're going to look at baskets of goods to get a sense of where the economy is, whatever. Like there's all these. It turns out Hayek was wrong. If you were a (laughs) private issuer of currency, what you do is you issue 21 million units (laughs) And you have some way of being held accountable and of people verifying. Yeah, and then you holiday. turn on some miners and get your hands yeah. on some. Yeah. <laughs> but Hayek, I think, was default Keynes against Sill. Yeah, this is why, uh, you know, even Hayek said it just does not fly. Yeah, the idea of a currency backed by something, I think, is dead, right? Like, fiat killed it. You know, if we went back to gold, I would want to just go back to like ounces of gold. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to go to like, you know, some gold ducats or, you know, yeah, one dollar equals, you know, 15 ounces of gold or whatever. Yeah. I'm trying to remember there was the uh, Keynes' system Bancor. Was that also doing like baskets of goods or were they just being totally synthetic? Like uh, Keynes was just. Maybe. Probably like doing drugs and having a vision or something. I do know that Keynes' IMF... what the correct money is. With the SDR, they go full meta of a basket of currencies. Okay. And that should also be a learning moment, a teachable moment for for stablecoiners. Well, no, it just gives me an opportunity as a stablecoiner. I'm going to create a stablecoin using stablecoins as my basket. 
and it'll just be this forever thing. And and then there's the network effects are so hard that you give up because it's not, <laughs> nobody wants it. Yeah, I think that, and same thing with like the central bank digital currencies, you'll hear people, CBDC. Well, they're, they're talking now how all these countries are... Uh, yeah. Are, are working on them. Like I think in the next few years, we can expect a lot of announcements. And uh, really, that's just embarrassing for the governments. Uh, yeah, people are going to be asking questions after the fact of like, wait, why weren't you guys just buying Bitcoin? <laughs> scamming scamming your citizens that hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. You ICO'd on this? You know, first China is like going forth full authoritarian on the, on their their people to halt a virus, and now they're going to be pulling a, a blockchain scam on them. It's a, the Communist Party has no bounds. Well, I don't think they're even going to be successful because it goes back to like our argument about you know our currencies backed by the military, yeah. or the police, or the state in general, and. Like, I don't, you know, in any meaningful sense of the term, I don't think they are. Obviously, the military kind of just prevents invaders from coming in and destroying your currency right away. But they're not forcing people to use it. And so, like, even these CBDCs or any of these uh, new contraptions, like, you're going to have to offer a product to consumers that they want. And they don't want all of the inconvenience of Bitcoin with none of the number go up. Yeah, that's the part I don't get is like people get Bitcoin despite how offensive the user experience is, you know, and if there wasn't that promise of continued purchasing power increase, Bitcoin's network effect really would be self-limited. I just hope these Fed coins write white papers and I hope they have to present that. I want I want the white papers to be written in such a way that us Bitcoiners can understand the monetary stuff going on. Yeah. Want, they need to lay out clearly how the cryptography works, how the functionaries work, how the consensus mechanism. And we need a full technical analysis. Who will get the senior edge too? Yeah. You know, it'll be like, well, Jamie Diamond's going <laughs> to get, you know, $10 million. And then <laughs> they, they're going to itemize uh, where, where all the new money's going. I want a an updated version of... The Mystery of Banking by Rothbard, yeah. but written f- from the Bitcoin perspective. Yeah. <laughs> that would be good. Just demystifying banking by understanding it as shitcoin. Well, service. yeah, because people have been trying to reason by analogy to understand Bitcoin, but now we need to go in the opposite direction. Yeah, no, I mean, Bitcoin is truth. Yeah, it makes way more sense to think about it that way. It's like, yeah, gold is like Bitcoin, except there's a lot more of it. <laughs> It's physical. I did like, I saw some people talking about fractional reserve banking and really inflationary fiat systems are like staking. And so, yeah, so in order to keep up with the inflation, you got to stake your fiat and get that sweet, sweet interest, which, yeah. And also that it gives you political power to stake your fiat. And uh, I don't know, I don't know how true that part is because I, I don't think, the government cares if you own bonds. Like They probably enjoy it. Yeah. They get more... Yeah, but if you went to the government and you were like, hey, look, I own $500 billion worth of bonds. You need to provide basic services to my community. <laughs> you know, the government would be like... I have this pothole and it's like, sorry. 
we will print as much money as needed to buy the funds <laughs> off of you. Like we don't actually care. And so that's, I don't think that there's, it's not like staking where you might have some vote on the consensus mechanism or something. Yeah. I mean, they'll just like go full and then, and then tea on that. Yeah. So yeah. print more money. It's yeah. It's the solution to everything. We'll void your bonds. We'll <laughs> repudiate the debt. And your potholes will continue to... <laughs> it would be funny if people actually, based on how much they pay in taxes, expected that amount of value from the government. Yeah. You know, yeah. like when Bernie talks about like millionaires and billionaires. Like what if billionaires actually wanted you know, a billion dollars worth of services for the government. But they've been avoiding that many taxes. Well, I, I was thinking like... Yeah, you know, as they claim. I mean, that's part yeah. of their thing. It's like, oh, show me oh. the tax return. Show me the tax return. Oh, right, right, yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. well, you know, just, you have the money. You get to pay for it yourself. Yeah. You get to have all your nice private services. But these people, they paid into our business. Yeah. So they paid the premiums. We're going to take care of those customers first. Yeah. Sorry, it sounded like you were thinking no, of something completely Yeah, different. no, no, but the, I like your line of thought better. Uh, this is how we turn the Bernie bros into like full-on Hoppians. Because this is basically part of Hoppa's uh, desocialization plan is you look at everyone as either a net taxpayer oh, yeah. or a net tax beneficiary. If you're a beneficiary, you get nothing because you already got your fair share. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. by fair share, I mean very unfair share. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, bearing a parasite off everyone. If you are a net taxpayer, that is the number of shares you receive towards United States of America as a newly formed just corporate entity that then everyone, you know, they probably have to restructure, sell off all their, you know, so a ton of property because they can't, they grew way beyond their actual means. So, you know, we'd have to all decide what we'd want to buy. It might buy the Grand Canyon. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, but, Grand Canyon... There's other... I mean, I mean, I'd actually yeah. buy up all the federal lands in the West to fill a bison, but... <laughs> that seems more practical than the Grand Canyon. It's like, yeah. I'm trying to think yeah, of what you do with the Grand Canyon. At, you, know? you go so, white water rafting to yeah. the Grand Canyon. I'm just saying, like, that'll be yeah, one of the things yeah. that they have to sell off and someone buys it. You know, yeah. maybe Disneyland. You know, Disney makes it into a new theme park or something. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that would be a nice theme park. <laughs> anyway, like... Yeah, so they do that, and then um, everyone has their shares of how much they had to pay in, and now they get to, uh, you know, get the value out of it. it. Their, yeah, yeah. Their, their equity, the dividends for, like, oh, this thing's not actually bringing in any revenue except by, like, stealing it from people. you got to come up with a better business model here. This is the real Yang Gang dividend, <laughs> you know. And maybe, maybe that's... Maybe Yang is... Is it called black knighting or something? Yeah, yeah. Or you just like, you take someone's dissonance and you just push it in the direction yeah. they didn't really intend for it to go. You know, if he's like, oh, okay, you know, $1,000 a month, but you got to be a net tax payer to receive it. And right. we're going to true it up. Yeah. And then like, if it is true that these billionaires are not paying their fair share of taxes, well, then they're not going to get their fair share of value out of the U.S. government. We can put our... Yeah. You know, foot down on well, because I, I don't want to be paying for their stuff. Yeah, um, which turns us to yeah. to election predictions. All right, because Bitcoin twenty twenty. Yes, Bitcoin's going to be the big winner. <laughs> Actually, it's funny to superimpose. You know what's going to be happening with you know what we expect. Uh, you know the price going up and with the elections. Yeah. Time. Did Satoshi mean for this to happen? 
Four years, right? Every four years, he, right he on election year. Four years, I, I, it, uh, it seems odd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh, start, start in 2008, <laughs> and then 2012, 2016, 2020. And what amused me in this political process was in Iowa, they couldn't get a simple app to work. Yeah, you know, to to, to count some votes, uh, which I think should people. Like, shouldn't they call into question the entire thing from first principles at that point? I guess not. Uh, yeah, I mean, it goes to show the extreme epistemological problems of democracy. Yeah, was it Lenin who had the quote about it doesn't matter who votes, it's who counts them? Right. And we can't even trust those people. They can't even count the votes in their favor. They don't trust each other either. <laughs> like, the campaigns were, like, looking at each other like, which one of you influenced this to cheat? And really, it was probably just incompetence, but they can't tell if it's incompetence <laughs> or if, because they know that they rig elections all the time. Yeah. And so now when you just have incompetence, <laughs> everyone is, is like looking at each other and it's like, you know, the Bitcoin governance meme of like holding guns at each other. Like, yeah. Which one of you cheated on this? Who rigged this election, this particular election? But, you know, it looks like Biden is tanking. And so... If old Sleepy Joe can't get elected, then... Uh, Buttigieg, is he the one who came out on top? Him and Bernie. But people, the betting markets are really tilted towards Bernie. And I don't know if it's like an ideological thing of, you know, like, you know, Ron Paul people yeah. would go <laughs> predict Ron Paul's going to win. Yeah. Even though that was mildly unrealistic. I mean, Ron Paul got, got shafted in, in Iowa years ago. Yeah. So. Yeah. Iowa's a, a battlefield. Uh but then now, now with Trump, we know that upsets can happen. Yeah. And so Bernie could, it could conceivably be Bernie versus Trump. Larry David versus Donald Trump would be fantastic television. So yeah, really, I think that that's what Bernie should do is say, "Hey, I'm stepping back from the limelight. I'm going to have Larry David <laughs> step in, and he's actually he's got more appeal than I do. Let's face it, <laughs> and." Clearly, America wants to hire people they've they've seen on TV. Right, right, yeah. exactly. I think that's Has Larry David been on the appren- the Celebrity Apprentice? He might have been. I, I I don't know. I don't think he was. Uh, that would um, be that would have been funny though. I mean, he'd been on the like Saturday Night Live. I yeah. remember some some sketches. But actually, you know, I saw a tweet. Someone tweeted out how apparently he may have given money to Buttigieg. Oh, the betrayal! Yeah, yeah. Wow. Oh man, I was reading. I'll just call him Mayor Pete. Um, Mayor Pete, yes. 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 Mayor Peter. Mayor Peter. <laughs> uh, Mayor Peter went to, he always talks about his time in the military, that he's a military mm. fit. Yeah. But apparently uh, he had like the easiest way of getting into the military, which involved no boot camp. I don't know <laughs> why that's a way of getting into the, like if someone is saying they're a veteran, I have to assume they went through boot camp. I need some proof of work. Here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. Of like, wait a minute, you didn't. It's like saying, like, yeah, I got into a fraternity where they don't haze you. It's like, well, did you really <laughs> get into point? a fraternity? Or, <laughs> I got elected mayor down, without so. an election. Like, you know, when people uh, replace the old guy, they get appointed yeah. or something. But anyway, this is the these these candidates. They all have their military stories that don't pan out. Uh, yeah. Or like right. John Kerry, yeah, he's that whole thing. Swift boats, yeah. 
Swift Boat Veterans. I don't even remember what that story the, the is The Zoomers about. listening to us. What, what election was that? What are you even talking about, Boomers? Yeah. You realize it was 16 years ago. It's, uh... And then, yeah, speaking of John Kerry, one of the weird parts about it was Mayor Pete wrote a book. I don't know that anyone at the age of 30 should be writing books, autobiographies about themselves. Yes, you should be writing the Bitcoin standard, but writing an autobiography about yourself is a little self-aggrandizing when the mayor of South Bend. But uh, he uh, wrote a book, and <laughs> when he's talking about his quote-unquote military service, he talks about John Kerry being an inspiration, which is <laughs> really, I guess, correct, but weird self-admission there. Yeah. Oh, like, man. Yeah. I mean, he seems like someone who, like, McKinsey and, like, so one of these consulting hard. firms was, like, trying to craft like the candidate. Yeah. Well, you gotta have a military record. Isn't he like okay, a right, scholar the, yeah, or something? Yeah. Oxford. And, yeah. Like, yeah. He's just he's ugh, something's off about that man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, I feel like he's like at night he takes off his like a robot underneath like a like a skin or something. Or uh, like something American I can psycho. like about Bernie is he's just like this uh, you know old. I don't know. I don't know where he's actually from. An old New York Jew. Yeah, yeah. Right? He's uh, he's actually from the neighborhood that I'm from. Okay, so he's he's from Brooklyn. Yeah, 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 like yeah. So he just like has that. It's like yeah, I, that, that's someone I can expect to run into there. It's like where in life would I run into a Pete, a Peter, a Mayor Pete, except uh, in, in the, some like Harvard Wuhan bio lab. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is the this is the real uh, this is the real Wuhan virus. There's there's yeah. sending out these kinds of. Uh, you know, supposed people, some kind of like chimera of like, or I guess it would be like a cyborg, yeah, um, robot in person in one. It seems that he got under Joe Biden's skin. Yeah. Joe Biden said, Joe Biden seems like a real person. Oh yeah, I get, like yeah, no yeah. programmer, no AI could ever come up with the crazy things that he says. <laughs> yeah, like, and, that is, and that, that like is pure muse. That is like he's visiting the Oracle at Delphi and sniffing whatever they're sniffing. And like, actually, I guess his his son's a crackhead. Well, or smoked crack. It's not. Yeah, let's <laughs> not be pejorative. You know, his son is a successful Ukrainian gas executive. <laughs> he wants to. He wants to sit back and relax a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, like Joe is saying some crazy things that no one. You can't script that. That's and, pure muse. And doing crazy things like <laughs> kissing his granddaughter on the lips on stage. Seemingly groping women in public, <laughs> like, like a crazy. Uncle. This, whole, this is what's so great. I mean, you know, with with Donald Trump, what I try to, as people know me, I, I really like try to avoid politics. Like all, all this that I know is simply because things kind of come across my Twitter account. The I don't, circus. I don't look this up. In fact. I'm almost bummed at how much of it comes through my Twitter feed. Well, but, it's but, my fault because I go, <laughs> I do go look this up because I find it endlessly entertaining. What I like tell people to like, because you know, like people are really upset, like you know their their feelings about Trump or whatever. It's just like, look, like this is a reality TV show country. We get a reality TV show president. Yeah. You know, as, as George Carlin joked, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. So this is what we get, and so you can't help but just be entertained. So, it is what it is. Uh, I I try to avoid it because you get sucked in and it's also like not as... There's no number go up is the problem. 
Yeah, I mean, it goes back to like, it's even worse than uh, cypherpunks not writing code. Uh, cypherpunks <laughs> watching the news is really awful uh, type of situation. But I don't know, I, I've got to find yes. my entertainment somewhere. But Bitcoin will win uh, out of all of them. Uh, yeah, a, yeah. A decisive victory. Yeah, I, it would be cool if it got debated, you know, on stage and it's like, because I wonder if, you know... Or, you know, they, they don't let Tulsi on stage and stuff like that. Yeah. Or sometimes they've, you know, had problems with... They Dan. refuse to Where's talk the, about it. Yeah. Why aren't you talking about Bitcoin? Yeah. This is a, this is a uh, major problem to not uh, be having it on the national stage. I feel like one of the candidates is going to be anti-Bitcoin or pro-Bitcoin, right? And then the others have to, like either jump on the bandwagon or contrast with them by taking the opposite view. And so, like, for a Republican versus a Democrat, I think that Trump's position on Bitcoin will be determined by what the Democrats' position on it is. <laughs> and so, like... Or vice versa. Yeah. Although we didn't see people rallying support behind Libra after uh, Trump was uh, tweeting about Libra. That's true. That's true. In fact... It was amazing to hear AOC defending the racist U.S. dollar and shilling USD, mm. you know, despite the absolutely awful history of oppression that the USD has, which goes to show that, you know, she gets her paycheck in USD. Yeah. Yeah. So you, she's, you know where her she's a paid are. Yeah. yeah. They're all paid shills. That whole, that whole circus, <laughs> no matter what party... Or uh, yeah. and that's fresh. They're all on the same team. They're all on the same payroll. <laughs> Who Mnuchin. pays off all the politicians? Mnuchin is paying off AOC. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's literally paid by Mnuchin. <laughs> and uh, no one bats an eye. Uh, but yeah, it's funny because people are like, oh, you know, they're on the payroll of big oil. No, they're all on the payroll of big <laughs> government. I Like 100% of them. Big oil in some ways is on the payroll of you yeah. know, big government. Yeah. Why do they... It's, uh, I wonder, did Ron Paul take salary into his office? Did anyone accuse him of hypocrisy? Um, I think he was taking welfare checks and people were, or social security checks. Uh, I remember that being a thing. And then then people like Walter Block uh, defending because it's like, well, that money was stolen from you through taxation, so uh, you should receive it back. And, you know, the problem of it being a Ponzi scheme, I mean, that shows how awful the system is, is you can't even get your own value back that you put in. Yeah. Unless you get in ahead of everyone else. So someone necessarily is going to lose. Scammers. Total scam. All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> I'm glad we finally got to the scam part because I was worried we wouldn't talk about scams today. <laughs> Talked about Social Security. Uh, although, I'll defend Mayor Pete on one point of his platform. is that he wants to legalize drugs. And so okay. that, you know, okay. But he's pandering. Like, yeah, it's yeah. focus group tested. It's like, well, we looked at the polling data and like this would be popular to see. But anyway. once again, this is coming out of like a McKinsey lab yeah, somewhere. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, Popper from the New York Times, worst blog out there, had uh, tweeted or no, he, he wrote an article about like, actually, I mean, he had a tweet storm about it, too, about like, oh, all the Bitcoin. Bitcoin's not doing well in recent months. Yeah. Which I don't know which charts he was looking at, but... He's looking at like one minute candles. He's like, 
over the past 30 seconds, it's Bitcoin's crashing. Uh, over the past five seconds, Bitcoin's crashed. This thing's dead. Uh, yeah. Um, so he was trying to, oh, it's all about drugs. And he's talking about the drug net markets and stuff. And he's like, yeah, the New York Times would never write about why people actually care about Bitcoin, where it actually creates value, because they could never in a in hundred years actually like come around and be like writing against the Federal Reserve on serious terms. Maybe I should write in a, an, an editorial. Yeah, yeah. For the New York Times? Well, I'll shop it around. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try to get it published in someone's blog. <laughs> it finally ends up on InfoWars. It's like, <laughs> the op-ed the New York Times didn't want you to see. Yeah, Bitcoin is saving technology. <laughs> I've got to print it out right here. Pierre, Pierre, how do you pronounce his name? Pierre Rochard. Here is written up an explanation. Yeah, yeah. I'm blowing through the mic here. My You're turning the freaking frogs canes again. Yeah. <laughs> poor frogs. Even the poor frogs. The frogs did nothing wrong. But yeah, and meanwhile, like they're talking about the drug net markets and stuff, and I, for one, you know, like I can't bring myself to get worked up over some drug dealer, good or bad, considering like the greater scam that has been going on in the American people and globally by the Federal Reserve for the past hundred years. Yeah. It's like, it's not, it's a drop in the bucket. It's like, first of all, these things should, you know, these shouldn't be crimes anyway. Yeah, so... It's it's like, you want to go find some like evil shit being run on people using money. Also... Nathaniel Popper, I didn't see him put a correlation between the price and the drug markets. Mm, you know, like, yeah. like show me the data, Mr. Data, right? <laughs> and so, and he's not written anything about the S2F price correlation that yeah. I know of. Yeah. And yet that's far more newsworthy. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think the Wall Street Journal has hopped on that. But that's fine. You know, I don't want Nathaniel Popper's audience to buy Bitcoin anyway. I want our audience to buy Bitcoin, so if you're listening right now, open up Cash App. <laughs> Are they sponsoring us yet? Well, uh, let's pop some other stuff. Go to Franklin.com. River.com. River.com. There's all these options now. Yeah. Coinbase.com. <laughs> you can even buy Bitcoins there. Yeah. They actually, out of all their offer, they do offer Bitcoin. They offer Bitcoin. So. They've got recurring buys there as well. Yeah. <laughs> Many different options. Or go online and sell drugs and receive Bitcoin. <laughs> Yeah, use BTC Pay Server. You won't even have to KYC your your yeah. drug money. And uh, <laughs> hey, feds, whenever we say drug, we're talking about caffeine. Get your heads out of your crack pipe, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about yeah, <laughs> the bean juice. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's the, that's the hard stuff. But yeah, yeah, you it's cr- a white you crush powder. it up. Right? Yeah, it's like a white powder. Yeah, some people just like swallow it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Coffee and the bus. Anyway, <laughs> that's a wrap. Here's something that you talked about earlier. I'll hit it again. Getting people to listen. As you are rising through the ranks, you will need to have your say. When you speak, you will want people to listen. But sometimes there will be people who do not listen and they interrupt or talk over you. How should you handle that? The answer is fairly simple let them talk. Let that person jump in and say what they want and let them finish their thoughts. This works for a multitude of reasons. If someone wants to talk a lot, then listen. There's no better cure for a person that wants to talk than letting them get their thoughts out of their head. 
Let them say what they want to say. When they have nothing left, you will be able to make your point. This is also good because as they unload all their ideas, you now know not only everything you know, you also know everything they know. Armed with this knowledge, you can assess their ideas. You can formulate counterpoints or recommendations around their thoughts. This works just as well or even better in a group where you listen to multiple people break down their own ideas, argue with one another, and ask questions of one another about the details of their ideas. Once again, this whole time, you get to more clearly understand the thoughts of others while quietly strengthening your own thoughts or ideas around the subject. When you finally do find the opportunity to speak, you have the most comprehensive and developed thoughts. So, Jocko just revealed the secret behind his secret power right there. That is definitely that was one, one of, of the them. major ones, yeah. yeah. Remember I told you, like, I didn't really realize how deep that goes, that mm-hmm. concept right there. Mm-hmm. And then when I sort of, I still probably don't know how deep it goes, but now, like, I see it a lot. I'm like, ooh. And then when you do it, you're like, oh, man, I should have done this from the beginning. We had a muster. And I, the, the the numbers I gave was, hey, as a leader, you should be listening 98% of the time and talking 2% of the time. That, that's the way it is. Yeah. What's the depth of that you're talking about? What's actually required, though, during that that time is that you're actually listening, though. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not just like, I'm right. going to let it get out of their system or you're being just, dis- you actually need to listen yeah, with yeah. enough humility to go, there is a good chance somebody here is going to say something that I haven't thought about, that I haven't considered. If you as a leader, like, I've got it all dialed in, but I'm gonna play this game to kind of let my people talk and what you're doing is just letting it get out of the system so you can then come in with the final. That's not what that 98.2 is. That 98.2 is, man, they got a lot of people have a lot of things to say here. I'm surrounded by probably a few smart people. Somebody's gonna say something I haven't thought about and you need to listen actively for what those things are and that gets back to, a comment from earlier in the book and a comment we've hit over and over again is you have to care about your people. You have to care about them, and which means you have to trust them and believe in them and vice versa, and somebody's going to say something that is right. And it's not a game to wait till the end so you drop in your 2% and win. It's that you are armed with all what you have and then what they have too, and it actually makes you a better leader. The caring about your people part is easy to say. That's really, that's hard. That is hard to do. Yeah, even in a conflict situation. As, which, which, yeah, I mean, especially know, in that, right? Yeah, that's when it, yeah, it's going to show itself a lot, big time, where conflict, especially when there's more than one one person in the conflict, right? Like a debate or something like mm-hmm. that. It's, it's interesting because you're so compelled, especially if you got a little knowledge yourself, right? Yeah. You know, well, I'm going to jump in and correct you right yeah. there. And, oh, you were wrong about this. This is actually really what happened, you know, kind of thing. But, yeah, if you just sit back, let that fly. Listen, let them fly, you know, let that fly. Maybe they even meant something else, you know, and just like how you're saying, like, really listen. Because you'll find out really what they're talking about. Because if you interrupt too quick, a lot of the time, in my experience anyway, uh, you interrupt too quick and then it's like, oh, they were getting to that. You know, like, you shouldn't have mm-hmm. interrupted. Then you mm-hmm. would have known that without even looking dumb or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, man. So, at the end, then you have, like, all the information just like you're like not only do you know what you knew and maybe you changed your mind yeah, maybe you yeah. did it but at least now you know yeah, you you've know? improved your position oh yeah and and this is just one of the one more thing that's counterintuitive because someone might think hey i want the team to listen to me oh yeah so what i'm gonna do is talk more and talk louder and and oh, it is yeah. The absolute opposite is what happens. Yeah. 
the the less you talk, the more people listen. The less you talk, the more people listen. Totally counterintuitive and 100% undeniable. Now, what's interesting too is when you're coming to these conclusions in your head, which as you're watching or as you're listening to some people talk or discuss or debate or argue, right? That whole time you're thinking, okay, and at some point you can chime in, right? And what's interesting is you don't even have to chime in with an answer. There's times where after 20 minutes of debate, I chime in with one question. And yet the question is because that's all these other, all these other less important questions and answers have been brought up and discussed and, but there's really one question that hasn't even been brought up and no one can see it because they're in the battle. Right, right, right. So I can ask, because again, I'm not, to your point, Dave, I'm not sitting there thinking I'm waiting for everyone because I already know the answer. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually listening and trying to assemble this entire picture. So when I, as this picture gets filled in by what everyone's saying, at the end, now it's revealed that there's something that's still missing. Mm-hmm. And now, guess who gets to ask this profound question? That if we as a team can answer this question, we will actually have the solution. Yeah, but no it's all clear. Even, yes, to him, it's all clear. <laughs> to us, we're like, <laughs> and then what about this? What about that? And yeah, tactical so, genius. Man. Yeah, it's the the i the ability to detach, to step back, to listen instead of talk is really powerful for a leader.